This is democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, January 2, 2022, and Happy New Year to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. This is our first podcast for the new year, 2022. Now, I have to confess that we've been a bit light on our podcast the past few weeks. As usual, the end of the year activities combined with the holidays makes things crazy busy, which has taken a lot of my critical time from the podcast. But this year, I've committed to work harder for this podcast. We're picking up more listeners each week, and we want to continue to deliver the best content possible. Also, it's an election year, so there will certainly be a lot of topics to discuss. So I'm really looking forward to 2022. As a side note, we had a bit of excitement during the last 20 minutes of 2021. My wife and I were watching the New Year's celebrations on TV when our next-door neighbor called on the phone and said that their house had just been shot. Well, they were, like us, having a festive evening watching the New Year's celebration on TV when suddenly they heard a loud crash upstairs. So they went upstairs and walked into the master bedroom to find that the drywall had been broken out and get this, a full metal jacket bullet was lying on the carpet. Now the bullet had broken through the wall, ricocheted around some of the furniture and landed on the carpet. Now, of course, the whole family was shaken by this event, and so they started calling their neighbors to warn them what was happening. As far as we could figure at the time, the bullet appeared to have passed over our house before hitting our neighbor's house upstairs. Fortunately, everyone is okay. Nobody was hurt, though it could have turned out differently. And the police are investigating. Now later that morning, I stood next to my neighbor's house because he'd shoved an arrow from his son's archery set through the bullet hole from the inside of the house to the outside. The arrow allowed us to assess the direction and trajectory of the bullet. And judging from the type of bullet, we're pretty confident it was shot from a pistol. We think it's just a matter of time before we figure out who the culprit is. We both live on a ridge overlooking the rest of the neighborhood, and people are coming forth to help identify the location from where the bullet was shot. Whether or not anyone is held responsible, well, that's up to law enforcement. Unfortunately, this story is not unique, and it's not necessarily always related to New Year's celebrations. In some parts of St. Louis City, as well as many urban areas across the country, this sort of thing happens on a daily basis. Equally unfortunate is that in Missouri, like a lot of other states, the rights of the people shooting the bullets supersedes the rights of the people that get hit by the bullets. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-gun. My neighbor whose house was shot actually owns several guns and actually has a concealed carry permit. And since we live on the edge of a suburban area surrounded by a lot of wildlife, we often hear gunshots from deer hunters in the area. Now, for the most part, I trust all these people with their firearms. I just wish there was some set of firearms regulations similar to automobile regulations. I mean, you know, think about it. When you're driving your car down a two-lane highway at 60 miles an hour and someone is driving the opposite direction at the same speed, there's only a thin yellow line that separates you from a 120-mile-an-hour collision. You inherently trust the other driver, well, partly because you know that everyone on the road has a driver's license that validates that they've had to prove some level of competence at handling their vehicle. And you also know that if these people prove incapable of handling their vehicle through an accumulation of driving infractions, they lose their license to drive. So you pass within a few feet of disaster without even thinking about it as you and the driver in the oncoming lane fly past each other. 
So all I ask is that a similar set of regulations exist for all gun owners and that they are subject to monitoring their behavior similar to driving a car. Anyways, back to the podcast. I'm excited about our upcoming plans starting off with our podcast next week. Now, assuming that our schedules remain lined up, next week we will feature Kenny Zhu, who's written the book, An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. If you've tuned into our Twitter feed over the past few months, you'll see where Kenny and I spar on a lot of topics. Kenny usually starts out by saying something that I don't agree with, so I let him know as much, and then he responds. And I gotta tell you, I always appreciate that he takes the time to respond, and in our online exchanges, we often reach a point of understanding each other, though not necessarily agreeing with each other. Nevertheless, I enjoy these exchanges immensely. So I read Kenny's book, and so I'll have some good questions for him during the interview next week. The interview will be published on next Sunday's podcast. Over the past year, we've aired a podcast each week. Most of them are originals, but some have been repeats. Well, this week we'll do a repeat, but it's an important repeat, I believe. I went over the statistics from all of our podcasts over the past year, and from that list, I selected the most listened podcast. This interview is with Olayami Oluren. Our interview with Olayami aired on February 28th of last year, and the issues we discuss are just as relevant today as they were nearly a year ago. Olayami Oluren is a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society of New York City, and our conversation centered around how the criminal justice system is ill-prepared to effectively address many of the problems of society. Society blindly depends on law enforcement to arrest and incarcerate people, which rarely addresses the real problems. The outcome is a never-ending cycle that traps poor and disadvantaged people in a system of repeated incarceration without hope of eventually recovering. Now, Eliami is one of my personal heroes, and my definition of a hero is someone who sees injustice in the world and then goes all in to help fix the problem. During our interview, Eliami provides deep insight into the criminal justice system and offers a number of ideas designed to address the root of the problem rather than simply addressing the symptoms. She explains how the phrase defund the police is not a move toward anarchy. On the contrary, its intent is to address systemic issues in society that breaks the incarceration cycle and benefits everyone in the long run. And besides being a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society's Criminal Defense Practice in Queens, New York, Olayami Aluren is also a writer. So let's drop in on the interview at this time. Keep in mind that this interview was recorded last February, so if you hear us talking about COVID or making specific political references such as talking about Governor Cuomo, well, this was all the reality last February. Olaimi, uh, welcome to Democracy on the Move, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good. Well, I brought up uh, Carlisle Arnold's name in the introduction. Uh, could you briefly fill us in? Uh, tell us who this man is and what happened and why the Legal Aid Society is working on his behalf. So Carlisle is my client. On January 2nd, he was arrested and charged in Queens and charged with reckless driving of his ATV. Um, and I arraigned him. And shortly after that, I realized that he'd actually been abused by officers from the 113th precinct. And there was a video of that. So what had happened was he was riding his ATV. He was at a candlelight vigil for a friend. So a bunch of people were there riding their ATVs um, in celebration of the friend's life. 
NYPD comes and they tap his ATV like with their car. They physically hit his ATV. Mm. And so he stops his bike and he kind of stumbles off from being tapped. And immediately as he stumbles, several officers, more than three officers, tackle him to the ground. And then one of the officers, notably Officer Thomas Mentario of the 113th Precinct, kneels on his neck. They're all on top of him. They're kneeling on all his body, but Montario is kneeling on his neck and all of the bystanders are screaming bloody hell, um, asking him to remove his knee, saying, you have your knee on his neck, and he didn't lift it up. Um, and that's notably the first first known incident of that happening since the last summer when they passed a law forbidding officers from kneeling on people's neck following George Floyd's death and mm-hmm. obviously Eric Garner. So um, we're trying to get the Queens DA's office to uphold their promises to hold officers accountable, charge them, and dismiss my client's cases. So that's what we've been going through now. But they're honestly acting a lot more like the officer's defense counsel. Mm. That's a pretty tough fight, I imagine, because the union must be pretty strong there, correct? They are. Mm-hmm. They are. Yeah. So we're hearing a lot more about these types of things. I mean, it, it, you mentioned George Floyd, but even before George Floyd, we've been hearing, you know, as a nation, hearing more and more about how law yeah. enforcement is abusing their authority. And yeah. unfortunately, this is nothing new to our minority communities, but now it's getting an increasing amount of attention nationwide. And I don't know if this extra attention is because it's happening more often or the fact that more people are capturing these abuses on their mobile phone uh, on their mobile phones or i suspect a combination of the two so i'm not a psychologist i'm not a lawyer i'm just a layperson but it seems that somehow between the codification of law and its enforcement there's a severe breakdown so you as a lawyer working in the legal aid society can you give us some of your ideas on why there's this breakdown so that's the thing i wouldn't call it a breakdown right because we have this tendency to talk about these things as problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of what is making the criminal system horrible and the issues with policing are not problems. They're problems for us, but they are they are being intentionally carried out. They are they're not random random incidents. They're not mistakes. This is what it's deliberately. And you know, people would like to look at it in the light most favorable to the police and say, you know, these are random incidents and. These are, you know, issues that need to be reformed. But the reality is the police departments themselves all around the nation insist that these are not isolated incidents or these are mistakes because they defend all the behavior. They don't Mm -hmm. come out and condemn the activity and say these officers should be reprimanded and, you know, we're going to do our best to to resolve this. No, they they fight back. They resist. They say this isn't a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should be allowed to do this. They they fight against every. Um, reform effort, every policy that's put in place. So they're the ones making it clear to us that, you know, this isn't a mistake, this isn't an accident. So it's not an issue of, you know, getting rid of a few police or, you know, doing more implicit bias training. Statistics have shown that those trainings do nothing and the officers in their unions themselves have said they do nothing, they don't want to be bothered with it. It's an issue instead with what policing is in this country and what the criminal system is made to function. So for me, I'm an abolitionist. I don't believe that these reform efforts do anything. Creating mm. more laws that are just going to be end up being um, end up being applied to poor black and brown people isn't going to help. Creating more, giving the police more money and giving the prison and the courts more money 
doesn't do anything because if that was the case, we would live in the safest country on earth because no. we have the largest prison system, we have the largest incarcerated population, our police departments are paid more than everything else. What we need to be working towards is abolition. And I mean this, that sounds radical when you first hear it, but mm -hmm. it'd be, there's an understanding, this isn't going to be a tomorrow thing, right? In a world where I want these systems abolished, I don't think I'm gonna snap my fingers and tomorrow it's all gonna be gone. That's not practical and it wouldn't be um, realistic. What we're actually saying is um, it's a twofold thing. Instead of putting the money into the prisons and putting the money into incarcerating people and punishing the exact same people society's already failed, let's address the actual root problems, the actual um, mm -hmm. social ills that we're turning into criminal issues. Let's put the money into the community itself, put it into education, put it into their mental health, put it into the infrastructure so that we create the conditions where people... Um, people don't have to turn into these activities that you're saying are crimes or, mm -hmm. you know, these issues that we're treating with the prison system that can only exacerbate those problems. Everything that prison and the courts and everything says is wrong is only fostered and made worse in the prison system. If somebody is violent before they're, they're um, thrown into the criminal system, mm -hmm. prison only breeds more violence. If somebody has mental health problems, it can only become worse. If somebody has trauma from their upbringing, what was their community, it can only get worse. And those things don't just affect those people. It affects their families, their communities. It creates a cycle. So the criminal system we have right now only, only fuels that. It's just a machine working exactly as it's intended. So for me, it isn't about any of these reform efforts. Those have been, those have been shown time and time again to do nothing. And for legislators, district attorney's offices, police to resist them at every turn. So it really has to come now to slashing these budgets that we've given, these bloated budgets we've given to police departments and putting that back in the communities. That's interesting because, you know, um, I, I've said many times in this podcast, I'm an engineer, and so I look for solutions to problems. But I guess what you're really saying here is that this is really not a breakdown. This is more of a systemic thing that, that's yes. been going on for a very long time. And that no matter how much training goes on in the police department, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, they resist it. So that is not so kind of like thinking outside the box, I guess, is what you're saying. And we need to restructure everything. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Huh. Like I'm looking at it from a perspective of we need to be solution oriented, even if you're somebody that, you know, we live in a society that's been taught to believe anybody that's wrapped up in the criminal system is bad. You know what I mean? They're a criminal. There really is no innocent until proven guilty. People, people are not sympathetic to who they believe are the people that's in the system. They don't see the people there as me and you and that they don't realize that people get arrested for getting into arguments with their mother and regular everyday activity. They don't mm -hmm. realize that that's not what they're, they're shown. So they're right. not inclined to be sympathetic when you say, you know, I don't think there should be prisons and I don't think there um, should be this punitive system. They think, oh, Ted Bundy and you know what I mean? The handful right. of whatever they see on TV, they're, they're not interested in that. But if, you, if you're not interested in that argument, look at it from the perspective of what is this doing to help us, right? Like, right. how is this, this keeping us safe? How is this addressing the actual issues? And it's not, you know, we, I mean, I'm in the business of, of, of coming up with solutions and, Instead of you know putting poor people in jail, let's figure out ways to create uh, situations where they aren't living in poverty, where they don't have to turn to crime. You know, right. you see, you know, there's a community that's breeding violence and stuff. Address that, you know. So that's what it really is about. It's it's 
it's not about trying to, you know, raw people of accountability or anything like that or saying, oh, these people don't have any work to do or anything like that. It's about, it's about trying to create a system that's better, that's better for all of us. Right. And mm-hmm. the reality is that people don't talk about it a lot. They tend, they tend to talk about, oh, you know, keeping us safer and oh, the community this, but the yeah. community that's being protected quote unquote, police line poor communities. That's just the reality. That's where police are. You're not gonna go in Long Island and see a bunch of police on every corner. But if you go to Brooklyn, you will. You're gonna Mm -hmm. see police everywhere. Those are the communities, black and brown communities and poor communities are the ones being policed. They're the ones, you know, having these negative experiences with the criminal system. So who exactly is being protected and being served when it's that community, the communities that are being policed that are telling you the police abuse us, um, um, prison Mm -hmm. hurts us. So those are the people that should be getting the say on what the criminal system looks like, because that's the reality of who's interacting with it. So. Right. Well, have, have you, can you point to any areas where you're seeing some of these reforms taking place and, um, it, or, or is this just something new or, or what? I mean, you got, I can imagine. The reform by reforms, you mean the, the reform efforts um, that I like don't agree with or? Where no, the things that, things that you agree with, let's say like revectoring uh, funds toward other things like education, mental health, and uh, more of a social type of uh, response to the, uh, to the issues as opposed to just a military force via the police. Right. Ohio, I'm, I'm, I think it's Ohio. Um, I can't remember where specifically in Ohio off the top of the dome, I should have checked, but there is a place in Ohio that um, had already like slashed its police budget mm-hmm. um, and stopped prosecuting certain crimes. It might be, it's either, actually it could be Ohio, it could be Jersey, an area in Jersey, but mm-hmm. they had already taken this approach of kind of defunding the police and putting it into um, different and not having having like mental health provider which is right. another big issue yeah but police responding to mental health calls yeah. and issues jesus but yeah. there have been places that have tried it. i know and seattle um recently did something but mm-hmm. okay. i don't know the specific cost of top of it all but there are places moving towards that okay and uh those are the places we should probably you know, start tracking and seeing how successful it is i can't imagine it not being successful and yeah. you know, I can sort of, if I may give you sort of an anecdote here, a personal anecdote, uh, back in the late 80s, uh, my mom used to work as a security guard for one of the state mental health facilities uh, in St. Louis here. And uh, it was a fairly large facility with hundreds of clients, and most of them were mentally slow, but there were also a sizable number of clients that suffered from mental illness. And during that time, it was like uh, toward the end of the Reagan administration, funding for this state-run hospital was cut. And yeah. I remember at the time asking my mom about it, and I, you know, I asked what's going to happen. And it was a painful topic for her because she really cared, you know, for the clients, and she'd gotten to know most of them, you know, personally. And she said, you know, she said they're going to be pushed out onto the street, and it's going to be a problem for the police to handle. Yeah. And in the years since. Unfortunately, that I saw that she was right. You know, the police yeah. really are not prepared to handle these mental illness types of cases, and and they uh, shouldn't be handling them. Yeah, and they shouldn't be right. So, is there any? How about New York City? Is there any sort of a recourse for police officers to handle people with mental illness? Do they have like social workers uh, working in they, that? They do. The funny thing is, um, 
there are there are social workers, there are mental health professionals. They if they wanted to put a system in place where they had those people respond to it, they could. But instead, they prefer to have the seen budgets that they do. You know what I mean? Have mm-hmm. NYPD handle these things because here's the thing: they don't have to handle the things the way that they do with our our mentally our our clients that have mental health issues. They choose to. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I have represented somebody who a family member called because they wanted them to get help. They wanted them to go to the hospital and the police will say, oh, you're, we're just taking you to get some help just to go to, to the hospital. And the person will get treated, walk out the room and they arrest them. Yeah. It happens constantly, yeah. Yeah. It's constantly. And the system, and like I say, when you, when you tell, you know, like these horrible stories, people think it's like, you know, uh, something out of the ordinary or something obscene or something malfunctioned, but that is how it's done. And Everything is set up in a way to prevent us from doing the thing that's helpful to our, our, our clients with mental health issues. And let me explain what I mean. They arrest our clients mentally um, unwell people all the time, right? And mm-hmm. I, you have an option. You know, if you talk to, you're talking to a client or Raymond's and you realize like, okay, they're not all there. They have, you know, some issues. They should probably get a psych exam. They should get treatment or something. They shouldn't be having to... Um, stand stand through this case or they're not competent enough to go through this case because they have mental health issues right mm-hmm. so there's this uh the avenue there is tax for a 730 exam that's a mental health examination right mm-hmm. to say and if they're found mentally unfit then the case will be dismissed but if we to ask for that 730 exam they have to be remanded so you have to make a choice either i try to get my client if i try to get my client a 730 exam to get them you know mm-hmm acknowledged as unfit and get them the treatment they want to get rid of this case now i send my client into rikers i put them through that that trauma like mm. or you know mm. i try to get them out you're constantly in this position if you try to if you want to put your client in a mental health um court part because they need help or they need treatment and they otherwise these are poor people they don't have health insurance they don't have the ability to get these resources or these things that they need and so you see this opportunity okay i want them to get this treatment i want them to get this but if you do that now they're going to take some bs case that otherwise they have no business trying to drag out or they wouldn't be able to prove it it wouldn't be able to carry on and they're going to drag it out for a year and they're going to put your client all of your clients ability to get rid of this case or do anything is going to be conditioned to how successful they are at completing whatever it is that the court arbitrarily determined that they need not really what they they're saying they need for their psychological treatment or what's wrong with them they're not getting that that say the court's saying you need to do this this treatment and if you don't do it um if anything's a little bit off if you if you fail if you relapse anything like that you know you're doing it at the threat of criminal conviction or jail and the Mm -hmm. issue with that is inherently like what mental health issues are what substance abuse issues are all these things is relapse is a part of it you know what i mean mm-hmm. people are people in the real world don't just magically you know one time through and then it's done that's not how it is right. but the criminal court puts that on them so it is it is deliberately set up in a way to make it um unfeasible for us to go those approaches for us to get our clients that kind of help that they really need a, and that's yeah. not it's an it- accident seems like a big failure for the system to really understand what it means to rehabilitate a person. And that, or, and that yeah. that's an important point because mm-hmm. the system's not in the build in the business of rehabilitating anybody. It's a punitive system, yeah. purely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's and it, I I can see a law officer has basically weapons. And I've, I've often said this, it applies to many places in life. If all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Yep. So you send a police officer 
to a situation that really doesn't require law enforcement. It requires, uh, for lack of a better term, compassion. Yeah. And you're sending the wrong tool to do the job, basically. Yep. Exactly. And and I guess what you're saying right now is is that even if you manage to get your your client into a system that could possibly help him or her, um, the system itself says, doesn't understand what it means to rehabilitate, doesn't understand what it means to truly uh, help a person in this right. situation. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not it's not interested in doing that. That's yeah. just the yeah. reality. And so that makes sense. I mean, it, in, in a sense that people talk about defunding the police. And, you know, I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm in the Midwest now. I was living on the on the West Coast for a long time. I'm now back in the Midwest. Where in the Midwest? Yeah, uh, right near St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So and I've gotten to know a lot of people here. I've, I, I grew up here, moved to the West Coast, lived out there for almost 30 years, and now I'm back. Um, yeah. But when when the phrase defund the police comes up, it, it, it's seen as a threat by a lot of people out in the, you know, especially out in the rural areas where they don't get a whole lot of information except what comes to them through Fox News. Yeah. And they immediately think this is going to be anarchy, right? Because if you don't have any law enforcement, what do you have? You know, what use is it to write a law if you don't have law enforcement? But I think what, you know. the, the word that needs to really get out, though, is that the... The, the current way of funding the police is not really fixing a lot of the problems. Um, right. you know, somebody's speeding or somebody's, you know, committing a crime, like robbing a bank or something. Obviously, you know, you need law enforcement there. And that's when the, that's when the tools of the trade come into play, you know, the, the, right. the shields and the guns and so on. Um, but most of these cases are, are really what you're telling me is this is, um, it's the wrong tool to use. And so we're putting too much money into the the tools of the trade, the, the guns and the badges, uh, and not enough yeah. money into the compassion. Right. And, and to addressing the issues that lead people there. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. that's what people, people, you know, they talk a lot about, you know, even, even people that are being sympathetic to the plight of your clients, it's always like, you know, people deserve a second chance. But what people don't realize sometimes is most of my clients didn't have a first chance, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. They 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 weren't in a in a good position and then they ended up there. They were already they were already not given the tools to succeed. You know, mm-hmm. people people don't realize the majority of the criminal system, the vast majority of the criminal system are d- d- like wildly poor people. Yeah. You know, most people are represented by a public defender and the in the the income guidelines on how poor you have to be to qualify for our representation is extremely low. I myself wouldn't qualify for my own representation and I identify as the poor. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I would not be able to afford a lawyer. So people, people don't get that part. If people don't have anything, you know, I, we, we represent people. I've represented over well over 500, 600, 700 people. And there's just poor people. You know what I mean? They're yeah. just people, people getting into arguments with their family, just everyday activity. You would never realize um, could be criminal, could be a criminal issue is what it is, you know, like, oh, someone banged too, too loud on their door, you know, mm-hmm. and now they're being charged with criminal mischief of the door, like, because yeah. the door had a dent banging too loud on their door because they got locked out, you know, those are the kinds of cases you have, and they don't, you know, they, they drag on. So 
that's really what the system, like the majority of cases in the criminal system are nonviolent. They're nonviolent, petty misdemeanor cases. That's what the majority of things are. Mm -hmm. But people can't pay bail. They're stuck in jail. They're forced to take a plea. Things get bumped up. They lose their jobs. It's just, um, it's, it's not, there's nothing about the system that is, you know, innocent until proven guilty because, you know, the allegations themselves could get you slammed, um, landed in Rikers indefinitely, you know, when you go to arraignments, the prosecutor and the judge discuss those allegations as fact. You know, most people just haven't picking up a case, they lose their jobs. People have immigration consequences, um, you know, undocumented clients have the have the fear of ICE. You know, it'll be a case that is a traffic infraction or gonna get dismissed, but they still they still have to fear going to court because ICE is gonna come grab them. It's just a whole, whole myriad of ways the criminal system is just punitive at every single turn yeah and it's interesting in st louis here that's becoming uh somewhat uh more visible to people here you you mentioned about the uh, the bail system and the fact that poor people can't afford bail so they sit in the county jail right and now they lose their job and now they have even less money so there's no way they can make bail and it becomes this this i would call it a cycle of doom and yep. the initial infraction could be something as simple as a parking ticket, right? Yeah. And it just gets you into deeper and deeper trouble. They call it a poor tax here. You know, it yeah. it's it's a tax on people that are poor. And it yeah. it may not be a mon well, it is a monetary tax, but it is more of a of a psychological tax you have to pay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's uh, and there, there's recognition here in St. Louis. I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to look at the latest news articles on this, but I, I know it's becoming a recognized problem in St. Louis, and there's people that are sworn to do things about it. Um, hopefully, the same thing is happening in New York City there as well. well. Yeah, we we had a um, bail reform at the top of January 2020 that has made it a lot better. A lot of things have become they're not they're no longer eligible for them to set bail on so that's good um although in the middle of the pandemic Cuomo rushed through a rollback on some of those bail reform efforts mm-hmm. um but it's it's better it's better than it was yeah well speaking of that uh it- we do have a fractured nation, and we have a nation now that is gone that is going through covid uh hopefully mm-hmm. it'll be out sometime this year we'll we'll get over it and life <laughs> returns to i guess a new normal. Um, and this has really, really taxed us a lot. Uh, but, but the, the main thing is that we're a fractured nation at this point. And that being the case, it's really difficult to get the word out that, that, that you're trying to get out in a sense is that, you know, we need to reform, uh, reform the way that we do, uh, law enforcement, reform the way that we handle people that need help, um, what is being done? What is being done from your perspective to recruit the masses to help change the system? So, you know, I don't think um, that we are a fractured nation any more than we have been. You mm-hmm. know, this idea, people love to say, you know, America's more polarized than it's ever been. And, you know, uh, you know, race is dividing us more than it ever has. And that's not true. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If you if you ask the people who've always been experiencing America in its in all its glory and its ugliness too, and mm-hmm. the people that experience racism, this has always been it to the extreme. The only difference is now we're able to get everybody else in the conversation. And there's some, it's mm-hmm. at least realized on some level um, that it's a coming upon all of us, you know what I mean? To be a part of this conversation, all of us are, are aware that this is, um, 
an overall, an overarching theme that we're moving towards. So in actuality, I think a lot has changed in the sense that we're talking about, you know, abolition. We're talking about, you know, defund police. We're talking about all these things. Abolition isn't new. Wanting to abolish the prison system is, is an old school of thought that's been around, you know. Angela Davis has been talking about this for forever. Um, leaders have been, but it's been, you know, a scholarly term. Academics are talking about it. Niche audiences and groups and organizers are talking about it. But now, whether or not, you know, it seems like there's this opposition, of course there is. Any resistance to the status quo and any new idea is not gonna, is gonna be greeted with fear by everybody. But the reality is at least everybody is hearing it. Everybody's talking about it. And that's progress. That in mm -hmm. and of itself, that it's a mainstream talking piece, that politicians are arguing about it, um, that, you know, there's any kind of support for it. That's 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 a swell. That's a that's a major swell in support, actually, because abolition has been discussed and it wasn't until and defund the police and these efforts, you know, just became big on the main stage um, as of last year. So I would actually say uh, we're doing well, you know, where it's it's about educating people. You know, you can't fault people for what they don't what they don't know. Mm -hmm. A lot of why um, America's criminal system is able to be the way it is and operate in plain sight is because um, people have lived in a society with incessant propaganda. You know, every time you turn on the TV, any news, anything you watch is just telling you, talking to you like the police is oxygen and water. And, you know, anything that they do, all this brute force, all of this is necessary and just, and the people they do it to are bad people. That's what you yeah. see everywhere. So of course people are gonna think that they're not really exposed to anything different, but as people learn more, as people, hear more ideas as people um, are exposed to more, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll become radicalized against it. You know, they might not, everyone's not going to move all the way over to an abolitionist principle, but more people will move along closer to the idea that, okay, what we have here is a problem and a major problem in this, what we have needs to be eradicated in some way. So I think, I think we're doing well, actually. That's um, you've actually lifted my spirits a little bit here because you know it it, it I, I've never looked at it this way. You're you know the first the first step toward fixing a problem is recognizing the problem, and I guess what exactly. you're saying at this point, we're recognizing the problem as a nation. Now exactly. we're talking about these things. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I like that. So uh, it's painful, though. I mean, it's painful, and I think it's painful in the sense that. Uh, all Americans are now getting involved in this, and yeah. um, but you're seeing the 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 silver lining around the dark cloud. There, I like that. So let's go to the call to action section. What can our listeners do to support the Legal Aid Society of New York? You know, um, I think everybody has a different role to play. Everybody has a different lane, um, but I think. You know, less about supporting legal aid. Legal aid, we're good. Less support the bail funds, less donate to the bail funds because helping our clients is what will help us, help okay. us do our jobs, help us be effective. Um, get more involved in these DA elections. Manhattan has a important election coming up for district attorney and look out for um, people like Eliza Orleans and Dan Court that are running and try and get elected more people that are gonna push, push us more Mm -hmm. It's the vision that we're trying to see. I think people forget sometimes about local politics and all these different things, but those are what really matters because what's happening in the system, all the things, the terrible things that happen in the criminal system, 
happen because of legislators and prosecutors and judges and a lot of these and things are elected positions. So if you want to help legal aid by <laughs> help our clients, help mm -hmm. help the black and brown people in New York City, help the poor people by focusing on getting involved in these local elections and what's happening there. Okay. So that's what they can do for us. That's good. What is the what is the when you say support the bail funds, what does that mean? Oh, donate to the bail funds. We have local bail funds in New York City that will post bail for clients um, that don't have the money for bail. So we'll apply for them and the bail funds will pay their bail. Oh, okay. And they, they survive off of donations. Oh, that's that's good. That helps uh, solve that uh, small but uh, significant problem. Well, I guess it is exactly. a significant problem, but it's just one of the many problems. But uh, yes. certainly... Uh, Helping uh, bail out people who can't afford it is uh, a good thing. It yeah. is. Well, well, uh, uh, uh thank you for stopping by to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Olaimi Oluren, a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society's Criminal Defense Practice in Queens, New York, and a writer. Olaimi, thank you for joining us today and giving us giving our audience uh, your insight to some of the issues of law enforcement, and especially want to thank you very much for the hard work that you're doing toward making this world a better place for everyone. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Eliami O'Luren from last February. We'll have a lot more new and interesting conversations in the podcast this year. I'm looking forward to it. You're listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please, please, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org slash contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you'd like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode. And again, Happy New Year to everyone, and I hope we all find happiness and prosperity in all its forms in 2022.